Uh, good morning. Please turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. The beginning of the chapter is where uh, the sermon text comes from for today. And I'll read through that in just a moment. If I could summarize today's message in one word, I would choose legalism. The topic of legalism is a pretty heavy subject, so I thought I'd start out on a little bit lighter note. So I want to show you a couple of slides from a website called the Babylon Bee. How many have ever heard of The Onion before, that website? It's a news parody website. Uh, the headlines are supposed to be funny. They're not true. It's humorous. So the Babylon Bee is a Christian version of that. It's a Christian parody website, and it's written by a Christian. And in order to read the Babylon Bee, uh, the requirement is you have to be able to laugh at yourself. So this is Christians gently poking at other Christians, and it's funny. <laughs> and... Humor is good. Say, humor is good. Humor, jokes are good. Jokes are fun. So that's how we're starting off. So I, I've been praying people wouldn't be defended, but if you are, you can send all your complaints to uh, John Stein at yahoo.com. <laughs> Here's the first one. Bible College to offer a course on panhandling for future youth pastors. So... So the first couple of slides, um, I'm just kind of getting used to the humor, and then the, then the next few I'm going to show you, actually they're poking fun at legalism. So this is how it relates. The next one. Local father counts Duck Dynasty episodes as family devotionals. <laughs> I heard an amen somewhere. Um, this next one is, is maybe, I've been reading this website for about a year, and probably once a week, a headline will just make me laugh out loud. And this is one of my all-time favorites, the next one. Guilt-ridden Tim Tebow apologizes for stealing second base. <laughs> so the next, the next set is where things get a little bit more tense, because... Um, these headlines are, are, are poking a little bit at uh, legalistic tendencies that some Christians have, and they're stereotypes on denominations. So, um, deep breath. <laughs> Baptist Church security detains man trying to smuggle tambourine into service. <laughs> Neil, thought of your tambourine last week. Now, if you read this site long enough, if you I don't even read the stories. I just read the headlines because they're enough to make me laugh. Um, every denomination gets picked on at some point. So if you're, I'm a former Baptist background, so if you are, just remember, humor, humor's good. But they are a little tense. Oh, boy, this one's a little tense. <laughs> Archaeologists unearth suit Jesus wore while preaching. <laughs> right there in the Gospels. Uh, okay. Motion-activated lights turn off during West Presbyterian worship service. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's John Stein at yahoo.com, yep. 
Um, yeah, then, okay, I only have two more, but this, okay. Southern Baptists vote to affirm inerrancy of Second Amendment. Oh, that was a little, okay, sorry. <laughs> Last one. Baptist kids learn exciting account of Jesus turning water into grape juice. So what I want to do is um, I, have a, I have a good, what I think is a good definition of legalism, and I want to show you that first and, and then read the passage. And I think that will help illuminate uh, the scenes that we're going to be looking at. So uh, Donald Whitney is a, a great scholar, and he writes a lot about spiritual formation. And so I'm using his, account, his uh, definition of legalism. It's on two slides. Legalism is the improper emphasis on works in our relationship to God. It focuses on the manifestations of spirituality that can be measured by number, frequency, duration, amount, and so forth. Now the second slide, one more sentence. I want you to read it with me, please. No one has the authority to force upon themselves or anyone else external measurements of spirituality that have no scriptural basis. Mark chapter 7 I'm going to read our passage this morning, which is verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and honor your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again, and he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had encountered the house, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, 
sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Whoops. I broke it. Let's read this definition one more time together, please. No one has the authority to force upon themselves or anyone else external measurements of spirituality that have no scriptural basis. What I want to do now is give you some examples of legalism. (laughs) There's, There's no way around this message not being controversial, I found out while preparing it. So um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to start off by giving you examples that came directly from reading I did to prepare for this message. This is the first set of examples. And these are examples of authors, they're they're giving examples of legalism. They're not arguing for these things. They're giving examples of legalism that you hear in the church. Don't attend movies, don't play cards, don't dance, don't drink alcohol in moderation. Men shouldn't have long hair, women shouldn't wear short pants. So those are just the ones that I listed as I was doing my reading. I just listed all those examples down. Uh, I think it's a pretty good um, representative list. The only thing I think is this, it might be a little bit dated. So I decided to create a second list of examples of legalism that I've encountered um, in, in 20 years of ministry experience. Um, so these might be a little bit more modern. Don't use drums in worship. Don't wear jeans or shorts or t-shirts to church. Men shouldn't have facial hair. Christians must be Republican. Christians must use the King James Bible. I have a story to go with each one of those, although I'm not going to get into that. Now, the problem with legalism is not that one of these examples might be your personal preference. That's not the problem. The problem with legalism is when you make your preferences other people's requirements. It's okay that one, you choose one of these, th- or you choose, you have, do these things in your own life. That's not the issue. It's making them the spiritual standards for everyone. That's the problem. So do you have a problem with legalism? I think the answer to that question is, number one, I think there's two parts to it. On one hand, I think we all have an inner legalist. I think, that, I think we all have an inner legalist, um, and I think it's just residue from our sin nature, that just we're, we're kind of born uh, overvaluing our works in, in relation to God. It's not coincidental that almost all world religions are works-based. Works um, I've also noticed that if you ask an unbeliever, or if you hear an unbeliever talk about, why are you going to heaven? You know what they'll cite? Works. Well, I haven't, I haven't killed anybody They cite works. So I think that we all have an inner legalist because it's just part of our sinful nature of overvaluing our works. Um, But the other answer is I think for some, maybe legalism is a larger vice, just like we all have uh, certain areas of sin that we kind of struggle with. Well, legalism could be someone's uh, area of sin that's, say, um, you know, more like an area of weakness or something that's... uh, uh, you know, a frequently occurring sin, something they're wrestling with often. I think if a person is, is um, frequently struggling with things like being critical or judgmental of other Christians on issues like this, that would be a sign uh, that there might be an issue with legalism uh, that needs to be addressed. So if that's you, 
If you've heard enough already to know that I might have a problem with legalism, uh, this passage I think is going to speak to me, what I want to tell you at the beginning is that legalism is not the unforgivable sin. Through the power of the cross of Christ and his resurrection from the dead and the indwelling Holy Spirit, you can overcome legalism like we can overcome every sin. So don't be discouraged as we go through this passage. I I hope that you will be uh, encouraged and take heart. Um, And I want to encourage you not to ignore legalism in your life, not to excuse legalism in your life, but to overcome legalism in your life. When I I was preparing this message, uh, reading this passage, um, the imagery that kept coming to mind for me is legalism binds us like as if chains were wrapped around us. Jesus said, the truth will set us free. The Apostle Paul says in more than one of his letters, he talks about the freedom that we have in Christ. Uh, so the opposite imagery for me was chains. And so this morning, I hope that the chains of legalism will break uh, in our church and in your life. So my approach to the text is, is, uh, is to divide it into three parts. That's how I usually approach uh, preaching a text. So I have it organized into three parts. And I wrote the outline in such a way that it also serves as the first steps for someone wanting to come out of legalism. So uh, I think that'll become more clear as we move on to point number one, is confess your pride. Confess your pride. So the first scene, we have these legalists confronting Jesus and his disciples for eating with unwashed hands. And Mark gives us this explanation in verses 3 and 4 that it had to do with wash, this custom was about washing their hands and washing their uh, kitchen utensils and about washing their, uh, even their dining couches. Now this is the second time in Mark that these legalists have confronted Jesus. If you remember Mark chapter 2, the legalists confronted Jesus because they were upset that he wasn't observing the Sabbath right. Right? And then they were upset that he wasn't fasting right. And now they're back again for kind of round three. Um, and they're confronting him on this, on this issue of hand washing. Now the background to this, to this teaching is actually Exodus 30. God told priests in Exodus 30, you need to abide by these certain hand washing uh, regulations and rituals. But what these legalists did in the first century is they imposed that instruction on everyone. God said this is for the priests. The legalists decided to make that everyone's standard and impose it on them. And this is why Jesus is going to be upset in this passage. Okay, remember the second part of the Whitney quote. No one has the authority to force upon themselves or anyone else external measurements of spirituality that have no scriptural basis. And that's exactly what these legalists are doing. Um, one time at work uh, last fall, I had just gotten done teaching a class, and I came back to my office, and this, uh, this co-worker um, come, comes to my office and is upset and said, you were supposed to be in that meeting. And I, I was new, so I was like, my name's Dan, nice to meet you. Uh, but they were upset that I was not in the meeting. And so they explained that the university hired this person. I was supposed to go and speak to this person, and, and I was teaching, and so um, kind of ups- this person was kind of upset and left my office. A little while later, I, I talked to my boss, and I said, you know, so-and-so came to my office and was kind of upset because I was not in that meeting, but, you, you know, I was teaching, right? I'm finishing up that class, you know, 40-something undergraduates counting on me. I think I need to finish that responsibility. And my, and my boss said to me, 
who is your direct report? Meaning, um, who do you answer to? And I said, you. And she said, then you do what I tell you to do, and you don't worry about what anybody else is telling you to do. Someone, not my authority, was trying to get me to fit their standard and their, you know, in a way, their law. Imagine you're going 55 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone, and someone says to you, you need to go 40. Like, no, I need to go 50. That's, you know, safest, and um, I think I'll go 55. You know, 55 and a 55. They say, no, if you don't go 40, you're wrong. You, said, you ultimately would get to the point where you would say, I'm going to obey this law and not you. Or imagine if you owed $1,000 in taxes and someone came to you and said, actually, you're in the wrong if you don't pay $10,000 in taxes this year. You would say, you know, I'm going to obey this law and I'm not going to obey you. So the same kind of thing is happening in principle here. People who have no authority are trying to exert their authority in terms of legalism in this ritual ceremony. Now, Jesus' response to these legalists is, is powerful. If you, if you want to know how, how upset Jesus is with legalism, you just read his responses uh, in this passage. Hypocrites, he calls them in verse 6. That Greek word means two-faced. He's calling them a name. You're hypocrites. You're being two-faced. You're talking one way and you're living another way. And then he quotes Isaiah in the next few verses to basically say, your words and your worship are empty. And you're telling me how to obey God. So far in Mark, Jesus has stilled storms. He has exercised demons. He has healed deformities. He has provided for the poor and the rich. And when legalists encounter him, what do they want to know about? Hand washing. Luke 15.10 says that when a sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. Legalism forces people to respond differently. That when a sinner repents and the angels are rejoicing, this, the legalist has to say, ah, well, but they're going to vote Republican, right? They're going to use King James, right? They're saved by grace, by the blood of Christ, but legalism wants them to conform to those lists. There's an adage, uh, kind of a proverb in ministry, maybe you've heard it before, that churches are great at saving sinners by grace, and they're also great at teaching them how to live like Pharisees. We're saved by grace, we live by grace. And yes, that has ramifications for behavior, and we'll talk about that, um, but the application is not to turn us into Pharisees. Legalism is deeply rooted in pride, thinking that we know the better way as opposed to God, that our standard is better than God's, that our laws are better than God's. It's deeply rooted in pride, and it must be confessed. Now, let me say this. If, 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 um, if you have already started to have that conviction, I think there are a lot of people still in churches today and a lot outside of churches where they have had an encounter with legalism in their past. 
that maybe it's the church they grew up in and some influential Christian in their life. They, had a, they grew up in a, a, you know, a legalistic denomination, a legalistic church. They were taught by a legalistic pastor, and maybe that's some of you. And if so, I, there's two things that I would like to communicate to you if, if you have a past with legalism. Number one, if you were taught and someone you know, taught you in your youthfulness or you're in naivety or you're an early Christian or, or whatever it is, I think Jesus has great compassion for you. I think he has great care for you and concern for you and is just eager for you to break the chains and experience that freedom that he offers you. So number one is I think he has great compassion for you. If you have that background, the second thing I would say is just because you have been taught legalism in the past, does not give you permission to remain a legalist in the present. How do you change? Confession. Any turn from sin in the Christian life, legalism or otherwise, always begins with confession. There is no first step without confession. So number one is confess your pride. Uh, Number two is destroy your idols. Jesus' elaboration, boy, verse 9, this, there is such power, there is such strength in Jesus' statement in verse 9, maybe the strongest in the whole passage. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Here is God in the flesh being sarcastic. and accusatory. He doesn't flip any tables in this scene, but it's that kind of intensity. It's that degree of passion that he's expressing to these legalists. This isn't meek and mild Jesus. This isn't stuffed animal Jesus. Not Mr. Nice Guy Jesus. Not Ned Flanders Jesus. You know who I'm saying? Ned Flanders Jesus. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Rob does, anyway. Uh, Ned Flanders, Jesus, this, this is the Jesus who confronts sin and stands up to legalism and makes accusatory statements to these, to these lawbreakers. This, this is Jesus of Nazareth. He gets angry over sin. Maybe that's on one of your lists that you've been taught in the past. Good Christians don't get angry. Jesus is clearly demonstrating otherwise in this passage. I started... I'm really trying to process all this emotion that Jesus is going through in this passage. And one of the things I reflected on is he's more upset with these legalists than he is in conversations elsewhere in the New Testament with adulterers and murderers. So often, you know, people we would be most upset with, maybe, we would be angry with. Jesus is, I mean, there's nice guy Jesus. But you get to the legalists in the temple or the legalists who are making all these accusatory statements to him, and boy, here comes some fire. He is passionate, and he is intense. Why does Jesus get so upset with these legalists as in comparison to adulterers and murderers? And I think the answer is that, of course, adultery and murder are wrong. They're sins, right? But neither adultery or murder directly challenges the perfection and clarity of the gospel. But legalism does. It's a replacement gospel. It's false religion. In this way, it's no different than atheism or Islam. It's an idol. It seeks to replace grace with rules. And it is an idol that must be destroyed. 
traditions are not inherently evil. Even traditions in the Christian life, even traditions in the church are not inherently evil, but they can turn into chains and they can become idols. And if that's the case, they must be destroyed. In verses 10 through 12, Jesus gives an example of their hypocrisy. He gives an example of their hypocrisy when he says, Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother whatever you would have gained from me as Corban that is given to God, then you would no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So here's the background to this example. The word Corban is a Hebrew word that's found many times in the Old Testament, mostly in the book of Leviticus. And it's found in the context of worship. Most, in most English, trans, English translations, it's going to be translated something like gift to God uh, or offering to God. But the word literally means, Corbin literally means dedicated. And in context, it means dedicated to God. And so here's what these, what these legalists would do. They would have, I'll just I'll kind of put it in modern terms. They kind of have a side bank account with, with uh, money in it. And they would say, that that money there is, I'm dedicating it to God. It didn't go to the temple. It didn't go to any, you know, social cause or whatever. It just, it was in that account. I'm just dedicating it to God. It was no more than just a, you know, a statement. That was about the value of it. So they had taken this, this beautiful thing in Corbin, in Leviticus, and twisted it and distorted it. So Jesus is saying, and so when your mother or father comes along and they are in need, and I've told you to honor your father and your mother, what you're saying is they can't use this money that I have because I dedicated it to God. And so Jesus is saying, I told you, honor your father and your mother. That's what I told you. This idea of, the, of dedicating this extra money to God, that's your rules. My rule is honoring your father and mother. Your rules is that this money is earmarked for God, so you can't use it to obey me. That's idolatry. That's replacing man's way with God's way. That's idolatry, and idolatry must be destroyed. The consequences Jesus describes in the beginning of verse 13, when they do this kind of thing, they're making void the word of God. Uh, that word that's used there, synonyms would be that they've canceled out the word of God. I think some translations say they nullified the word of God. They crossed it out. They're replacing God's word with their own. God's standard with their own. And that's idolatry. The end of verse 13 is pretty staggering. Many such things you do. Many such things you do. In other words, this isn't just a a parental issue that they have. This is what their life is like. It's hard to control legalism. Once legalism kind of gets inside of your Christian walk, it, it spreads quickly if we let it. And this legalism seemed to have in, infested all sorts of areas of their life. So dishonoring their parents and disobeying God's commandment to honor them um, was just one example of seemingly several. They had a lifestyle of replacing their word with God's word. Number three, examine your heart. In the last scene, Jesus teaches uh, two groups of people. 
he teaches the crowd, and then he goes uh, inside of a house, and he teaches his disciples. The crowd kind of get the general principle, then the disciples get the elaboration. To the crowd, in verses 14 and 15, he gives them that uh, general principle that's, that's stated clearly in verse 15, that it's not about what goes into the body, but what comes out of it. And then he goes inside and elaborates to the disciples, and he's upset with them too because they're not seeming to get it yet. Uh, in verses 17 through 19, he says to his disciples, he elaborates on sin, and he says it's not about what, comes, what goes into the stomach, but what comes out of the heart of man. In the beginning of, and in 21 and 22, Jesus lists, by my count, 13 separate sins um, that come out of the heart of man. 13 separate sins that come out of the heart of man. So, um, first of all, that's, that's a, we're kind of used to that because we've been in church forever. A lot of us have. Um, that uh, that we're, we're born sinners, sin is in our heart. But for the world, that's not necessarily the case. Mo- that's contrary to most, what most world religions teach. Most world religions teach that sin is like a, like a disease, like a cold that you catch or like a disease that you catch. It comes from the outside and infects you. You go through some ritual and, and it kind of leaves you. Jesus is saying something completely revolutionary, something completely opposite of what other world religions teach. And that's that the, the problem is the human heart that we're born sinners, and even if those sins manifest in behaviors like murder, theft, adultery, and all, all those different 13 behaviors, they're rooted in the heart. You want to tackle a sinful behavior, you must address the heart, or uh, that sin will not be uprooted. That's part of the application. If you were concerned that legalism, like if you, if you, stop, if you drop all those rules from your life, if you were concerned that the opposite of that is license, like license to do whatever you want. If I, if I don't abide by all of these rules, then it's just complete you know, behavioral anarchy because the opposite of legalism is um, uh, you know, moral relativism. That's, that's not the case. This, these verses prove that. The opposite, here's our 13 different behaviors that are universally forbidden of every single person. The opposite of not legalism. There's a little bit semantics, but maybe we could say the opposite of legalism is liberty, where, where liberty is defined something along the lines of uh, freedom that has boundaries. We're free people as Americans. Yet if I drive too fast on the way home, I'm going to get a ticket. So I'm free, but there are boundaries. That's probably a better way to think of the Christian life. We are free. Jesus said, I came to set you free. If you know Jesus, you are free. Yet here are 13 behaviors you are never to do. That seems to me to be freedom with boundaries. So if you struggle with legalism, examine your heart to see if there's any seed of legalism there and uproot it. You do that by confessing your sin, destroying the idols, and examining your heart on a routine basis. Uh, to conclude, I'd like to make two, two different uh, statements. One is kind of the in-house um, application from Christian to Christian. The other one concerns our relationship with unbelievers. Okay, so... Uh, okay. First one, Christian to Christian. We must all have the spiritual maturity to be able to discern in Scripture 
those behaviors that are universally forbidden for everyone and those that are a matter of personal conscience. That, being able to discern that is a matter of spiritual maturity and that is what saves fellowship rather than fractures it. I think Augustine provides a great quote here, the uh, fourth century theologian, when he says that in essentials, unity, meaning in the core beliefs of Christianity, we are united. Or in those universally forbidden uh, sins, like we find in verses 21 and 22, we are united, that those are wrong. In non-essentials, liberty. In other words, in those areas of life that are secondary issues that you might have personal convictions about that might be different than mine, I show liberty to you and you demonstrate liberty to me. In all things, charity. That's the full quote. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Again, the problem with legalism is not that you have a personal preference on politics or you have a preference on Bible translation or what you wear to church. That's not the problem. The problem is when you see those decisions as your standard of holiness, like you think that makes you more holy than somebody else, or when you try to impose them on somebody else for the sake of spiritual growth and maturity. That's wrong. That's sin. That's what Jesus is railing about in this passage. So that's my statement, uh, conclusion for Christian to Christian. Um, My conclusion for concerning evangelism is actually something that hit me really hard this week. Uh, I, I encountered it early in my preparation for this message, and man, every time I read it, every time I prayed about this message, it just kept coming back to me. I felt convicted myself. There's our list. You could probably add to this list. You probably have your experiences. This is what I was convicted about. What if a person who was seriously considering following Christ, was so intrigued by the cross, the idea of forgiveness, the idea of God's love, the idea of grace, and decided not to follow because of this stuff. I I think, I just got a personal conviction this week that I don't know, you know, when unbelievers are rejecting the gospel, I think this is a lot of what they're rejecting. It's, it's, I think, it's, um, I think it's, it's challenging for me to believe that there are just thousands and millions of people out there who say, God loves you, salvation is absolutely free, he's looking forward to forgiving you, he wants to be with you all eternity. Ah, oh, no thanks. Nah, that's okay. I think a lot of the rejection has to do with what they associate with the gospel, not the gospel. They think that, well, I, I do want to be a Christian, but, I, but, I, but I, I want to be a Democrat, or, you know, whatever's on the list. I keep using that. Uh, I was very convicted by that this week. Our, our personal preference, do we align our personal preferences so closely with the gospel that unbelievers confuse the two? They think that you have to checkmark all of these in order to become a Christian when that is not the case. And this is, why, this is a big reason why I think Jesus is so upset with these legalists. I'll end with Ephesians 2.8. Please read it with me. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. As I pray, if the ushers would please come forward, we'll prepare for the offering. Let's pray. Lord God, believers can acknowledge that the greatest gift ever given to us was Jesus Christ and the grace that comes through the cross and his resurrection and the indwelling spirit. You are by nature a God of grace, and yet somewhere along the line, we just kind of try and turn our Christian living into a whole bunch of works. And we try and uh, put those works not only on ourselves but even on other people. I pray, Lord, that if we are convicted that we have been doing that, whether it's in our own life or imposing those things on other people, I pray that we would confess this morning. I pray that we would um, repent, uh, that we would destroy idols, and that we would examine our hearts to see if there's any sin is there and uproot it. Uh, let us not minimize the grace of Jesus Christ by turning into Pharisees. So we ask this of ourselves individually. We ask this of Faith Free Church. We may, may we be a people who are defined by grace. In Jesus' name, amen.